Well, good morning, family. Let's open the Scriptures. Turn to the little book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul's letter to the, the folks who lived in the city of Thessalonica. A young and vibrant church that was there. This letter we have seen is deeply personal, encouraging, and emotional. We've noted over the last few weeks that Paul, as he writes these folks, he's, he's written some very glowing statements about their faith and their love, and he holds them up to us as an example, a model of what believers and what a church should be like. And so we have been, we're, we're in the midst of a study looking at this church and looking at, at what you and I can learn from it to follow in their footsteps, to follow in their example. Still, as good as this church is, Paul is about to encourage them to be to aim higher. There's a danger for you and for me as it is for them to become complacent. A danger for this church as they, as they hear Paul saying, wow, you guys are awesome. I'm so proud of you. I'm amazed at what God is doing. You guys serve as an example to all the churches around in the region of Acacia and all down through the centuries of what a church should be. There's a danger to hear that and go, hey, we're doing pretty good. And then to become complacent, there's a danger for you and me. After you walk with Christ a while and you know you've overcome a lot of a lot of obstacles, you there have been victories and you've grown, there's a danger in getting to a place where you get complacent. You say, you know, I'm pretty good. Doing pretty well. You think I'll just coast a while. Maintain the status quo. And how easily we move into where, where suddenly a vibrant faith becomes religion. It becomes routine. We go to church and we fill a pew for an hour on a Sunday morning. Maybe we go to Sunday school. Maybe we even get in a Bible study and we, we do some things, you know, and we, but we just get to routine. And we're busy doing stuff and we can say we're a faithful follower of Jesus, but really, our love for Him has grown cold. A real passion for Christ has waned and dimmed. And at that point, even though we might be, from the outside appearance, very faithful in following Christ, that moment we become very vulnerable. And I think that's Paul's concern here for this little church up in Thessalonica. We pick it up, we're in chapter 4 here of this book, and Paul begins verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We ask and we urge you, he said, in the Lord Jesus. In other words, if you're in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're, if you're a Christian, what we're about to say is important because he's saying we, we, 
we ask you, we urge you. Listen up, this is important. He says, that as you receive from us, or we're about to tell you isn't anything new, you've already heard it. And he says, here's the, here's the instruction, here's the punchline. He says, walk. That means, that's another word for to live, to please God. Live to please God. What Paul wants this church to know off, off the top, the thing he says, I want you to remember is you need to live to please God. Being a Jesus follower is not religion. It's not ritual. It's not just going through the motions once or twice or three times a week. It's all about living to please God every day, every hour of every day. That's really what it means. They says, listen, you guys, you're doing well. But I want you to aim higher. I want you to aim to excel, to do so more and more. And as they read this, they might be thinking like you might be thinking, wondering a little bit, okay, I trust in Jesus as my Savior. I want to follow Him. All right. I get it. I'll keep moving. I'll keep, I'll keep moving forward. I'll keep going on. I'll, I'll press on. But if, if I'm going to move forward to keep pleasing God, what is it that He wants? What exactly does God want from us? Well, fortunately, Paul goes on to tell us Exactly what it is God wants. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. He says, here it is. Here is the will of God. God's will for your life is sanctification. God wants you to be sanctified. To be, that means He wants you to be a saint. Sanctified. Holy. Holy means set apart for God. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ in our thinking, in our attitudes, and in our actions. If you've ever wondered what God's will is for your life, it couldn't be said any plainer than Paul says it right here. God wants for you to be sanctified. You know, spending over 20-something years as a youth pastor, and years as a pastor, and years even just as a Christian, I've heard an awful lot of people in my lifetime say, I wonder what God's will is. I wonder what God wants me to do. And usually it's followed by, you know, I wonder where God wants me to go to school. I wonder what career God wants me to pursue. I wonder who I should marry. I wonder where I should live. Right? You've asked questions like that before, haven't you? All of us have. But what Paul lets us in on here is the top thing on God's list for you is God wants you to be sanctified. It's number one on His list. 
And if holiness is not the top thing on your list or the top thing on my list, those other questions don't matter at all. If your number one aim isn't to be holy, God really doesn't care what school you go to. If your aim isn't to be sanctified, God doesn't care what career you take. It's not that God has no interest in such things. It's simply they're not the priority. And if the priority is wrong, everything else under it is wrong. God's will for your life is that you and I be sanctified. True, we'll never perfectly achieve that this side of heaven. But it should be our aim. Now specifically, Paul says, if you were reading carefully, he said that we are to be sanctified in our sexual conduct. He says, this is God's will, your sanctification. And he said that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, if you think about this a moment, sanctification is about more than sexual purity. Sanctification is being perfectly holy. And I bet if we wanted to sit down and start making a list, you and I could in the next few minutes come up with a long, pretty long list of what being sanctified looks like. And it involves a lot of things besides sexual immorality. Yet here, Paul says, this is God's will for your life your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. And what he talks about following this directly relates to our sexual purity. And we wonder if sanctification involves more than, than simple, simply sexual purity, why does Paul spend all this time focused on simply that one thing and basically saying God's will is your sanctification and that means abstain from sexual immorality? Well, I can't say for sure because the text doesn't say. But let me give us perhaps a few thoughts as to why this is such a big deal. For these Thessalonian believers, they lived in Greece, Macedonia, Greece, part of the Roman Empire. And in the Greco-Roman world of that day, they were saturated with immorality. It was all around them, saturating their culture. In that world, premarital, extramarital sex was common. Greek religion typically had prostitution connected to temple worship. Owning slaves was common and owning slaves and concubines for sex was acceptable. Homosexuality, cross-dressing, and, and sex with children, all of those things were considered normal and acceptable. Pornographic art and images decorated buildings. If you walk through some of those ancient buildings, as I had the opportunity to do earlier this year, you'll see that in some of the art all around. It saturated their culture. Many, probably most of these young Thessalonian believers have come out of that culture and most of them, many of them at least, had sexual immorality in their backgrounds before they became believers in Christ. 
And so probably in no other area of life was the contrast between holiness and impurity as stark, nor were the temptations to compromise as strong as in this area of sexuality. And so as sincere and as strong as these young believers are, and as much as they were a model of of what faith looked like, Paul is concerned that these young believers might easily get sucked back into the moral morass that surrounded them. So may I say then certainly that these instructions are as relevant and as applicable to you and I today in 21st century America as they were to this ancient little church. Because from where I sit looking back over history, the moral perversity of our generation today is perhaps more similar to that of the first century than to any of the centuries that have come between. We didn't invent it, but our generation has reinvented and has reverted back to what first century Greece and first century Rome was. Billy Graham commented not too long before he passed away. He said, we routinely laugh at things that used to make us blush a generation ago. Pastor and author Ray Pritchard wrote this recently. He said, Nothing much surprises us anymore. We've seen it all. And we've seen it so often, we've lost our ability to be shocked. Adultery, premarital sex, group sex, wife swapping, transgendered celebrities, transgendered pastors, X-rated movies on TV, sexting, hookup apps, easy divorce, multiple marriages, incest, child porn, bestiality, polyamory, gay churches, born-again pornographers, radical sex education. He says somewhere in the last generation, morality died. Public opinion eroded and the law therefore no longer interferes. It's a sad commentary on our day, but I think he's right. And so Paul's deep concern for these believers ought to concern us as well. And so he gives three specific and related commands regarding sanctification. Back to verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First command he gives us here is abstain from sexual immorality. Would you notice a couple of things with me about that one little sentence? First of all, it's an absolute command. Nowhere there do you see it as a suggestion. If you want to, if you think it wise, if it suits you, no, it's just a very plain, simple command. Abstain from sexual immorality. It's not an option. That little word, abstain, that means to hold off from, to distance yourself from, to have nothing to do with. 
In other words, not only don't do it, but don't toy with it. It's a dangerous cliff. And when there's a dangerous cliff, you shouldn't go over and see how close can I get to the edge before I fall off. Don't dangle your feet over it. Don't lean over. You know, don't walk over and you know, see how close you can get so you can get a selfie right by the edge. And yet that is what believers also often do. I know that God says we shouldn't participate in sexual immorality, but how far can we go before we cross the line? He says, abstain, stay back, withhold. Distance yourself from it. It's to have no part in the life of a believer. Secondly, that little phrase, sexual immorality, comes from a single word here in the Greek that is porneia. It's a broad word that refers to any activity of a sexual nature other than that between a husband and wife within the marriage relationship. Our culture would like to make that standard very fuzzy and very complicated, but it's not. Pretty much if you have to ask, you shouldn't be doing it. Clear. Anything other than of a sexual nature other than between a husband and wife within the context of marriage. If it's of a sexual nature, it shouldn't be happening except in that context. Please notice as well that sex is not condemned here. Only it's misuse. Our sexuality is designed by God. And within marriage, it is beautiful and purposeful and it's a gift from God given for our enjoyment. But in many ways, sex is like fire. Properly contained, fire is pretty to look at. It gives light. It cooks our food and it heats our homes. It does great good. But when fire goes wild... Look out. It destroys and it kills. So it is with sex. Outside of the marriage relationship, it becomes sexual immorality and it's a destructive force. So Ephesians 5.3 says in a similar way to us as believers, but among you, believers, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. It moves there not only in terms of sexual activity, but moves to impurity, which implies the way we even think and our attitudes. As believers, we simply, as he already said, we need to abstain from it. We need to steer clear from it. As 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee from sexual immorality. Don't walk. Run away. Verse 4. We find the second command here. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The second command here is for you and me to aim high. We live in an age that's dominated by the philosophy, if it feels good, do it. 
And we can expect for unbelievers to act this way. To be driven by desires because they don't know God. Some unbelievers act like animals because they believe that's all they are, is evolved animals. Others are in rebellion against God. Others simply are living for the moment. And so, of course, unbelievers are going to pursue whatever pleasures that suit them in this world. But it's to be different for us. Paul says, again, be controlled by holiness and honor, not by the passion of lust or the passion of sensual desires. As believers in Christ, we're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to be dramatically different from the world and the culture that surrounds us. As believers in Christ, we know that we are not just animals. We know that God created us. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. God created us special and unique in His own image. We are accountable to Him. As believers, we have a higher calling. We are sons of God designed to have relationship with God. As believers, we, we also understand we have a heavenly future, an eternal future that surpasses any and every earthly pleasure and treasure that there is. Therefore, as believers, we understand that we are to control our desires and to conduct ourselves in honor and in holiness in keeping with our identity as God's people. That's what Paul has just said. I say that sanctification then is not just about saying no to sexual immorality. It's about aiming high for holiness and purity and honor. It's about aiming higher than the culture and the world around us because we understand what our identity is and we understand what our future is. We aim high. Verse 6, we find the third command. Says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The word transgress means to go beyond what is right. And the word to wrong literally is the word, and some translations will translate it to defraud or to take advantage of or to cheat or to rob one's brother. In other words, sexual immorality involves. Cheating, it involves stealing, taking what isn't yours to take. Sexual immorality, in other words, he says, it is not, despite what our culture says, it is not a harmless and victimless activity. Of course, and so I would say the third command here, by the way, is don't damage others. Don't hurt them. Don't defraud them. Don't steal from them. Of course, we understand that in its most egregious forms, sexual immorality does produce victims. As people become victims of sexual activity through things like deceit or through coercion or through drugs or through violence or through rape or through prostitution. But we can also observe firsthand as we simply look around at our culture and we observe, we can understand that 
When sexual immorality runs rampant in a culture, it tears apart the fabric of society. I could mention many things, but just a few. It causes, for one thing, a proliferation of single mothers trying to raise kids, which increases poverty. It breaks apart marriages, resulting in single parents, more single parents, and in family situations where it's difficult for children to thrive. Sexual immorality literally affects a society's health as it is the breeding ground for sexually transmitted diseases. Sexual immorality has brought about the deaths of millions of children in our land because of abortion. It could go on. But but what about... And you've heard it said, what about our society would would protest? What about consenting adults in the privacy of their own place? Isn't that victimless? And I think while our culture screams yes, our experience and the Word of God says no. No matter how willing and consenting the partners are, Sexual activity outside of marriage still involves a defrauding, involves damage. Just a few examples. There is damage. There's a cheapening of each person's dignity and honor as they reduce themselves, or they reduce the other person, I should say, simply to an object for their own immediate pleasure or their own purposes, only at some point later to discard them whether that's ten minutes later or ten years later, there's damage. There's damage when a heart is broken. There's damage when a spouse is cheated on. There's damage whenever any one of us leads or encourages another person into sin. There is damage. There is damage when we lie or cover up our actions. And again, we could go on, but you get the point. Paul goes on after saying, here's three commands. If we're going to be sanctified, and if we're going to be sanctified in our sexual conduct, we need to abstain from sexual immorality. We need to aim high. We need to take care that we don't damage others in this area. He gives three reasons why sexual immorality is serious stuff. Three reasons why sexual purity matters. Verse 6, Again, it says, so that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Those are some powerful words. There are serious consequences, he said, with sexual immorality. First, God is the avenger. God will give out justice. He will punish those who practice immorality. There's not another way to read that. God will hold people accountable for their sin, certainly on the day of judgment. And at times, God may dispense to people some special just desserts, some punishments in this life. But also we do well to remember 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, it says this, The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The sin of sexual immorality carries along with it significant natural consequences that tend to follow along. Guilt, regret, fear, fear of exposure, Ruined relationships, loss of integrity, broken relationships, family strife, unintended pregnancy, disease, all of these things can cost severely. The Scripture says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. There are serious consequences. Verse 7 has another reason why this matters. Verse 7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Second reason this matters is because God has called us to holiness. God has called us to something higher and better than sexual impurity. God has called us to holiness. It's God's design. It's His purpose for us. And as believers in Jesus, God has the right to expect holiness from you and from me. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, it says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Maybe it would help if I illustrate it. This afternoon... You drive over to St. Charles and you plop down $100,000 on a new car. You bring it home. Whoa! Look at my new car. Isn't this awesome? Tomorrow morning you get in it and you push that button to start. You push the button and nothing happens And then suddenly a message pops up on that beautiful display over there. And it says, Nah, I don't think so. Not today. Check back with me tomorrow. How many of you would be upset? (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. I just paid a hundred thousand bucks for this car. I love this car. It's beautiful. I plan to drive it. I plan to use this car to get me wherever I want to go. I expect when I get in this car and I push the button, it starts. See, we'd be upset. Why? Because we bought it. It's ours. God says, I rescued you out of sin and out of death through the precious blood of My Son. When I call you to be holy, I expect you to be holy. God has honored and blessed us by loving us and rescuing us and choosing us to be His prized people. We ought to live up to that. There's a third reason why this matters. We find it in the last verse, verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. To say that this is no big deal to say that this doesn't matter 
we're just absolutely wrong. This isn't some crazy idea that pastors dreamed up. It's not just some outmoded concept, outmoded idea by an old-fashioned church it says, this is God. This is His Word, His desire. And if we don't take it seriously, we are disregarding and despising God. Paul doesn't even elaborate on it. He's just basically saying, you don't really want to go there, do you? matters. So I just end with a question this morning. Do you desire to live holy? Is that your aim? If so, praise God. Keep going. Keep aiming high. If your answer is, well, not really, or I'm not sure, then I'd ask the question, why not? Time for some serious reflection. What is there that's standing between you and the desire to live holy? I can guarantee that whatever it is, it's some idol. It's some sin. If there is sexual impurity, sexual immorality in your life, or if there's any other sin that's holding you back from aiming for holiness in your life, do you know this morning... You're not the first person to ever go through that. All of us are there at, from one t- at one time or another. But God offers to you this morning grace and forgiveness and restoration. The path is simple. It's all through Scripture. Confess your sin. Turn from sin to follow Jesus. Start aiming high to follow Christ. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to set us back on the path of growing in sanctification and holiness. Let's pray. Father, Your desire for us is greater than our own desire for ourselves. We set our sights too low. And often our sights are set on the stuff that's foolish and stupid and dangerous. We tend to fall in with the culture and the world around us and we forget that You brought us out of that. You rescued us out of that. It's a dead end and it's deadly and it's just rotten stuff. And Why would we want to go back there? And yet we have a propensity and a tendency to do that. Lord, some folks here this morning need to confess before You right now, Lord, I've been chasing the wrong stuff. I've been going down the wrong road. I've been, I've been clinging to sin rather than striving to follow You, striving to be holy. And I confess my sin right now and I ask, Lord, that You'd help me to change. Lord, I forsake that sin. I want to follow Jesus. Lord, draw me near. Keep me aiming high. Until Jesus comes back or until You call me home, may the desire of my heart 
be to be sanctified, holy, to be like Jesus. It's in his name we pray.